Hey guys, this is Anand Chimpy from AnandTech.com again. Uh, this is the AnandTech podcast. This is our third episode. Um, we've got two folks joining us, uh, basically the original crew from, from episode one. Uh, we've got Brian Klug, our senior smartphone editor. Hey guys. And Dr. Ian Cutris, our senior motherboard editor. Hi everyone. Um, so we have a lot of stuff to go over. Um, I guess we can start out, should we just dive into what's happened this week thus far? There's been a bunch of like chip architecture stuff that's come out. Yeah. Um, so Valley View, which we kind of, I guess we mentioned that on the first podcast episode. Um, so, so this was something that unintentionally leaked, right? Intel didn't clean up some of their, uh, uh, I guess, open source notes. Is that where it came from originally, Brian? Do you remember? Um, you mean the original code name leak? Yeah. I think that's right. I mean, there's always stuff that's leaking through, you know, like when people are making commits to projects and stuff. Yeah. So, so Valley View leaked and, uh, it was kind of interesting because it leaked as a, Hey, this is a next generation Atom based SOC with gen seven graphics. So gen seven is uh, gen graphics is internal Intel's internal name for its own graphics cores. Um, and gen seven is, the graphics core that's used in Ivy Bridge. So you effectively have Atom plus Ivy Bridge graphics. So this this leaked earlier this year. Um, and as with most leaks, you know, we weren't really big on commenting on it, but uh, I privately confirmed it, <laughs> right? So like that, that it, like it does exist, right? That was definitely coming and it was uh, just an unintentional leak. Um, and then earlier this week, uh, EX preview or XP review, I don't, I don't even know how to yeah. say that. Yeah, that sounds um, right. <laughs> They, they posted, uh, so the way this works is, right, like Intel will go out and brief its partners, um, you know, its OEM partners, everyone from like a, uh, a Dell to, you know, someone that buys a lot of atoms for use in digital signage or whatever. And it'll go around and brief all of them and say, look, this is what we have coming out over the next year. So then you can help uh, kind of, this will help you determine uh, what products you guys can build. And, and, you know, that way everyone's in sync. Uh, and the rule of thumb is as soon as they start giving those partner presentations, they get leaked like instantly. Um, and I think this is just a function of just how big Intel is. And uh, especially once you get to Asia, it's like just everything leaks right away. Um, so the site, uh, EX Preview or whatever, they, um, they posted some leaked value view slides. Um, and there wasn't a ton of detail in there, but there was some interesting stuff, right? One, it kind of confirms what we've known, which is uh, you take Atom-based cores and put them on an SOC with Ivy Bridge-based graphics. Um, the nature of the cores is kind of interesting. Uh, they are all the 22 nanometer Atom cores, which is the next generation Atom, right? So the current Atom we have dates back to 2008. It's a derivative of the exact, the original Atom Bonnell core. Um, so same dual issue in order architecture that debuted in the first netbooks. They've made some tweaks to the SOC, some like minor changes here and there. Um, but this is, Adam has effectively been on Intel's old cadence, right? Before TikTok, you got a new microprocessor architecture every five years, um, which has always kind of bothered me about Adam because Adam was created after Intel already learned that that was a bad idea, right? Like the, the whole five-year cadence that's what got intel into trouble with the pentium 4 and, and amd with you know athlon 64 and, and k7 before that uh, because they had been committed to this architecture for five years um I, I guess now you know intel's kind of committed to to moving to a 
sort of TikTok, but maybe even a little more aggressive than that with Atom, right? For the next three years, we get new process node and new chip. Um, it's not really TikTok, but we get uh, 22 and then 14 back to back. So anyways, Value integrates uh, 22 nanometer Atom, which is a new generation architecture for Atom. It'll be out of order, but we don't really know much beyond that, uh, whether it's two issue or three issue. Um, and, and I think that's going to be particularly interesting because, you know, this actually ties together with, you know, AMD announced some Jaguar stuff this week, which is its kind of Atom competitor. Um, but I'll get to that in a second. So, so you have this next gen Atom core. They integrate um, up to four of them on a single SOC. Um, and then with that, you have, I guess they're calling them Gen 7 graphics engines, which I'm guessing are Intel's EUs, their execution units, right? So in Ivy Bridge today, we have, what, six for the HD2500, and then we have, uh, what is it, 16 at the high end with HD4000. So this would give us four plus, you know, up to four Atom cores, um, which should be a lot better, right? Like the, the improvement in graphics performance should be pretty significant um, because if you look at what's shipping in Atom today, that's still GMA 3150, which is a <laughs> yeah. derivative. Like I don't even remember what that architecture is based off of. Well, and there, there's a couple like uh, SGX 540 Atoms too, aren't there still? Yeah, exactly, right? So that that's the other big thing, you know, for... Uh, over the past 10 years, Intel said that, look, it's going to start taking graphics more seriously. And then over the past, let's say, three years, they've actually proven that they have been taking it more seriously. So the obvious extension of that logic is, well, there's this whole group of Intel SOCs, you know, Medfield, um, you know, the Intel's uh, smartphone SOC platform, and uh, like Clovertrail, which is the Windows 8 tablet Atom SOC platform. Both of those platforms use imagination graphics. Um, which originally the idea was, hey, uh, imagination had better perf per watt than anything Intel could deliver, so it made sense to license from them. Um, and I think Intel owns something like, what, 13 or so odd percent of imagination? Um, yep. Both Intel and Apple are, are heavily invested there to ensure that no one kind of buys that company. Um, but, uh, you know, there's always been this concern or this thought that at some point, if Intel's really taking graphics seriously, that it would kind of kick imagination out. Now, I don't think Valley View is the first instantiation of that, um, because it, it's you know that that presentation that leaked kind of pointed Valley View as the replacement, and and the platform for Valley View is Bay Trail. I know all of these code yeah. names are stupid, but Valley View is <laughs> they the sort S of makes sense though, you know. Yeah. Trail. I don't know. Sort of. So Valley yeah. View is the SOC, and then Bay Trail is the platform. And that platform is the successor to Cedar Trail, which is the current netbook nettop platform, right? So this is kind of, you know, this doesn't kind really of a say... a nettop SOC. Exactly, yeah. right? It's not really telling us that, hey, the next Intel smartphone is going to use gen graphics, which I, I don't think it will. Um, well, you know, on one of the slides it says target uses, and then they list things like in-vehicle infotainment, industrial, and then on another one they're like signage, print yes. imaging... And then on the last one, they're like, small form factor devices use this package, and then it's consumer, you know, so maybe. I mean, I think it's, I think you can kind of sort of see where this is going, right? Yeah, I mean, I think you can't, you know, if you're Intel, you can't say that you're um, taking graphics seriously 
and then go on and license third-party graphics IP for the rest of your life, right? Like you have to. Oh, sure, yeah. At some point, you have to internalize that. I, I don't think that, like I said, I think Valley View, um, netbooks, net tops, you know, digital signage. Um, the automotive thing is interesting because traditionally everyone in automotive has gone for like uh, the really low power stuff, right? The stuff you get, you know, for example, NVIDIA has uh, automotive women's in, in Audi and Lamborghini. Um, and, you know, they're, I, they're driving the infotainment though, right? <clears throat> they're not really, they're not even getting close to attacking sort of like the industrial embedded like PIX AVRs that sort of thing that actually drives the car that's true so, I, but is did the slide say that Valley View was doing that or was Valley View all infotainment as well uh, I mean one of their things said infotainment I remember yeah yeah I, mean, I don't so know I don't think it, they're gonna go after that either right but I mean they're they're sort of going after that same space right like yeah. it's I mean and who knows this this looks like it's a it looks like, or it looked like to me, like it was um, sort of a customer presentation along the lines of the one that we talked, we sort of included in our Medfield coverage in the Lava Zolo phone yes. story. And, you know, so obviously, I mean, maybe it's tailored in some way to like, we're going to suggest that you use this in your infotainment system, you know, where, I mean, at the same time, it could very well be a tablet SOC, right? Yeah, that's true. I mean, well, I think the the obvious thing is, you know, even if Valley View in, in the Bay Trail platform doesn't end up in a tablet or in a phone, some derivative of it will. I, I think that imagination likely still has the, the perf per watt advantage um, because Gen 7 graphics is, I mean, it's all right, but it's, it's definitely not the most power efficient thing in the world. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. as we get to what Intel's doing in, in Broadwell, which I guess that would be Gen 9? graphics then then you might start to see uh hey this is this is when they start bringing this stuff into phones and and you know the traditional arm space i'm just more interested in the the new atom cpu because this is the first time yeah like you were saying we get finally a new architecture right and like atom has traditionally been on like like you were saying this sort of n minus one but it's sort of like an n minus like we don't care status (laughs) you know well because we don't want to cannibalize anything and there's that old argument and just for that reason it's always kind of been you know like we've made small small tweaks to it you know like the atom and, and medfield is essentially the same thing as what's always been around but yeah we have we have like a lower power sram right that we can yes. park everything no and then I, put put the thing to sleep but it's like fundamentally the same atom yeah I, I think you you hit the nail on the head right like intel has in the early days, there was always this worry that um, Adam, you know, if you made it too good or if you priced it too aggressively, that no one would buy Celeron. Um, yeah. And obviously, I mean, like Intel makes more money now than it ever has before, right? Um, and that's not because everyone bought Adams instead. And I think what we saw, what we talked about last week, in that it looks like Intel will be price, pricing uh, Clover Trail. So it's dual-core Atom-based SoC for Windows 8 tablets competitively with ARM-based SoCs, right? So you're talking around 20 ish dollars per chip, which is half of what it was asking for for Atom and netbooks. Um, I, which I hope, is great, yeah. I hope that means that Intel has gotten over the whole cannibalization thing, right? That it realizes that if it doesn't play this game, then people are just going to shop elsewhere, right? It no longer controls the market as aggressively as it once did. Yeah, yeah. 
You know what I find interesting too about this too, and I, I mentioned it to you, is that they have <clears throat> they have the Gen Seven encode, decode, and graphics blocks, and then they have this VXD imagination decoder. So it's like it's not like imagination is out, but at the same time we have this weird duplication of we can decode sort of everything here, and we can decode H two six four on either the the you know the imagination VXD block or our Gen Seven graphics engines blocks, which just seems weird. But at the same time, you know, like there it is, right? So what what were the reasons for that? Doesn't that mean that you can decode sort of two streams on the Gen Seven and then another on the uh, imagination? It's not it's not per per thing. Like we've seen VXD doing like four streams. Okay. You know. So but it's just like it's strange because there's this weird duplication that you know i i would just you know like there's this, there was a slide in there that was like they made a nice little table and they listed os and then driver application and something else and when i saw that i was like oh well i wonder if the drivers for the the v you know like the vxd are ready for these platforms the drivers for gen 7 decode are ready for this platform we're just going to like mix and match yeah, so it could be a couple things, right? One was a, uh, I was talking about this with Ryan, our, our senior GPU editor, um, over the week. And and one of the, the obvious reason why you would include uh, a different, you know, decode IP block would be if there's some sort of power motivation. Now, video decode is pretty well understood at this point, so I, I can't see it really being that. Um, yeah. So then the next thing is, well, is there a feature reason, right? Is there something that that block can decode that yours can't? Yes. Um, and imagination, I guess they can decode WebM. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the one thing in the table that's different, right? But WebM, nobody cares about. Well, like, see, let's maybe, just be honest. Maybe it's like, you know, some... VP8, yeah. No, I mean, like that... Wasn't that in the first podcast? I was saying H264.1, like, just go home, deal with it. <laughs> I mean, it's true, right? But what if it's... I mean, they're talking about, like, uh, uh, very specific customers, Right, someone that's making digital sure. signage. Yeah, maybe they have true. some weird application that requires it. Um, and and again, by no means do I think that imagination is out com- completely. Right, clearly, uh, you know, I mean, even Intel announced right the next generation Medfield stuff, not twenty two nanometer, the next generation thirty two nanometer stuff still leverages um, imagination IP on the graphics side. But I, I think this is the first time where we're starting to see the tides turn. Um, and, and I don't say that Valley View is the only indication of this, right? There's a lot of stuff going on in the background that I don't think we necessarily have uh, proof about that we can talk about publicly yet. But I, I think uh, if we go forward three to four years, that this is, this is the moment when we can kind of plot that trajectory. Um, and it, I mean, a lot can happen between now and then, right? It could turn out that imagination just gets so competitive, um, you know, post-rogue, that, that Intel continues to license them. Um, but I, I think that long-term, if Intel's committed to graphics, uh, that, that it's got to be top to bottom. Well, this is also the reflection of that, that everything under the core architecture group strategy, right? How so? Well, I mean, they're getting serious about finally building SOCs. Like, the, the CPU, per se, is an SOC, right? Yeah. So <clears throat> we need to reuse as much of our efforts as possible across you know the desktop the notebook the tablet and then smartphone and if we build a block that's you know like sort of um it's modular enough and performance per watt is good enough then we can just sort of scale up in the number 
right? And that's what they're trying to do here, like, like you were saying. I mean, there's six or, or more in the CPU, and then we have four in this sort of tablet slash signage thing. <laughs> you know, no, that's true. You could have, yeah. you, I mean, it's just like a logical extension is that now that they're serious, we're going we're gonna to work hard and get one block that will sort of unify our model across all of these platforms you know and then if 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 we can't meet it on the lowest end and the smartphone then we'll license img right like that that seems to be the strategy yeah no that makes sense and and for those of you who don't follow uh at last idf intel announced um that it was doing a restructuring of the way it designed stuff so when adam was first um, architected and and brought to market. It was done so kind of unusually for Intel, right? It was done so uh, on this like uh, they built a team almost like a startup, right? The team was allowed to kind of license IP if that's what made sense. They were supposed to be very lean, uh, quick time to market, and and kind of as low cost as possible. Um, but they operated independently of the core architecture team, the guys who were responsible for, uh, you know, what we have now, a Sandy Bridge, Ivy Bridge, Haswell, so on and so forth. And then at last IDF, so basically a year from uh, a year ago, uh, Intel brought all of that under the same roof, right? So now it's it's just one architecture group. They happen to build both core and and Atom stuff. Uh, and what we should see is is more synergy between the two going forward. Um, and Brian, I think you're right. Like I think I think Value View is is kind of uh, uh, it's a bit too early for that to be the direct result of this, but it's a it's a clear hint of of where things are going. Uh, yeah, that is that is true. It definitely is is a bit too soon. But I mean, obviously, it shows sort of that influence. Yes, I think. Um, so let's talk about AMD for a second, right? Uh, at at Hot Chips. Um, which I never get to go to because it always conflicts with like other events. But it's a it's an awesome conference. Like uh, if you care about chip architectures, like cool stuff always comes out of it. Um, so AMD had two big disclosures. Uh, they disclosed Jaguar, which is uh, so AMD has this similar dichotomy dichotomy to Intel now, where they have uh, this high performance microarchitecture um, bulldozer, pile driver, and the third generation of that a steamroller, um, and that would go up against you know, Intel's core series architecture. So Sandy Bridge, Ivy Bridge, Haswell. Um, and then it's got this like low power architecture here. Um, and, and those are referred to as their cat cores. Um, so Bobcat was the first instantiation of that. And that was kind of like a much better Atom competitor. And uh, the new one, the second generation that they, they just announced at, at Hot Chips or, or that they just detailed at Hot Chips um, is Jaguar. And, and that's why they're cat cores because they're all, you know, types of feline cat species i guess <laughs> not, not to be confused with apple's lineup correct yes cats um yeah i don't know why cats are so popular well because the, the, the internet is for cats that's true the problem is you get to the best cat and then where'd you go from there dogs maybe well what's the best cat like no you tack on things like mountain yes or like different seasons or like types of climate or acclimation right yeah, yeah, exactly. Snow. Yes. Um, rain cat. Um, anyway, so, so Jaguar. Uh, Bobcat was pretty interesting because it, it looked a lot like Atom, right? It was a, a dual-issue architecture, but it was out of order. And that gave it a little bit of a performance boost. It, it wasn't as dramatic of an increase in performance over Atom as I would have liked, but it had a decent graphics core. And overall, you just had a much better netbook, net top platform than Intel. 
So with Jaguar, I was expecting um, AMD to follow the same kind of cadence or, or transition uh, or path that ARM did, right? So you go uh, single issue in order, dual issue in order, three issue out of order, uh, and, and dual issue out of order between those two steps. So with Jaguar, I was a bit surprised that they went from dual issue out of order to uh, dual issue out of order again, right? They didn't increase front end width at all. And I, I actually spoke with one of the chief architects on it, and I was like, hey, you know, this seems like... And, and we knew from, from Bobcat that that two-issue front end was a limit in a lot of the kind of heavier use cases. Um, and, you know, over time, all workloads, as they mature, they become these heavier use cases. So, I, you know, I, I kind of posed the question, like, hey, doesn't this kind of not make sense? This isn't where I expected you to go, because even, even ARM at A15, they're, they're three-issue out of order. Um, and his response was really interesting, and it was really telling. Uh, and, and basically it was that, you know, with when you go three-issue on the front end, yes, there's definite performance uplift there. Uh, but you have to be very careful when you make that jump, right? And when you make that jump, there's a tangible power penalty that goes along with that increase in performance. And the, the hint that he gave me was that Jaguar was designed to go everywhere the Bobcat was going, but stay at that max power envelope and look into markets that are lower on the power chain, which points directly towards tablets and, and maybe even towards phones. But I, I think AMD's, you know, they, they don't have the bandwidth to kind of deal with that yet. Um, but, but I think that just basically spelled out that, look, Jaguar is kind of going to go into Windows 8-based tablets. Um, and that's the reason they kind of stayed more conservative on the front end there. Now, they did a bunch of cool stuff, and, and one, that's just like a really cool thing, right? That, that, uh, because AMD's kind of been absent from a lot of these ultra-mobile discussions, right? They don't have a phone part, and, and they're not going to for the foreseeable future. Um, and, and Microsoft didn't include them in the whole, hey, these are the, the Windows 8 tablets we're bringing into market thing. They're not one of the chosen SOCs. So the fact that AMD is kind of going after that design point, I think, is very important because, you know, we do need competition on the x86 side there. Um, and I think they have a lot to add, right? So I, I think it's a good addition. Um, so, yeah, the front end improves, but it doesn't get wider, right? So they include some, like, loop buffers. Uh, they improve prefetching. They, you know, the thing about a lot of these architectures is you have to hit such aggressive timelines on, on bringing this stuff to market that by the time you're done with the design, there's a bunch of stuff that is just ends up being done poorly, right? There, you discover things by the time you get to the end of a microprocessor design that just uh, you realize are, are, aren't done optimally. And if you had infinite time, you'd go back and, and you'd fix it and you'd do it a better way. And what ends up happening is if you have a well-run microprocessor company, you have a date set in stone that you say, look, the design has to be done by here. And then on that day plus one, you take all of the things that you learned and that you wish you did and you pour them into the next design. And that's what we're seeing a lot of with, with Jaguar, right? Like it's, it's a lot of the stuff that they discovered not only after designing Bobcat, but after having chips back, modeling it, you know, testing it out um, and getting good experience with it. They go back and they see that they have these bottlenecks that they can lift and, and you know, they hit the low hanging fruit first and then they kind of tackle the, the bigger things. Um, so yeah, they do a lot to the front end uh, improve prefetching, um, you know, it, it do some power optimizations there as well. Um, on the integer execution side, they pull in the hardware divider from Lano, 
Um, so Lano had a, a much faster hardware divider. They pulled that in. Um, they increase the scheduling window sizes. They uh, uh, give it some more resources for you know all of the the uh, the reorder buffer. All of that stuff grows. Um, just little things that they they kind of figured were uh, bottlenecks before that they kind of addressed this time. Um, on the floating point unit, so this was one of the weaker parts of Bobcat. They go full 128 bit units here, right? So Bobcat was all 64 bit wide. Um, so if you try to do 128 bit op, you have to kind of chunk through there. Um, but now they go 128 bits wide, which is going to be a, a tremendous impact to you know all sort of floating point uh, workloads. Um, and they so on both sides, right? In the, the the standard pipeline as well as the floating point pipeline, uh, they added an extra stage in there just for frequency. Um, on the decode side with the standard, the, just the integer pipeline, they inserted a stage there because that was actually ended up being one of their gates to reaching max clock speeds. Uh, so you insert another stage there, uh, which helps on your timing, um, which gives them uh, another 10 or so percent uh, uplift in, in peak frequency. Um, and they did the same thing on the floating point side. Uh, the floating point pipe gets one stage longer because the move to 128-bit units everywhere um, actually ended up penalizing um, or actually ended up requiring that that extra stage that just pushed the, the design to the limits there. Um, let's see, what else? There were some improvements on the load store side. Um, so Bobcat was actually the first AMD architecture that could do out-of-order load store. Um, I believe that's the case. Uh, even though yeah, Bobcat's shipped first and then, then Bulldozer followed. Um, and they apparently did a lot of optimization there um, in Jaguar to just kind of improve uh, memory performance. Um, what else did they do? Uh, the whole, like, they, they've moved to what they now call a compute unit. So Bobcat had single core with a private L2 cache. And if you had a dual core Bobcat, you had two cores with two private L2 caches. Uh, they moved to a shared L2 design, um, which is kind of rare in AMD's history. Uh, you remember this is something that Intel did back in the Conroe uh, days, but um, yeah, you got a you have a shared two meg L2 cache that can be sliced up, um, and and you know kind of accessed by any of the cores. It's also the first inclusive L2 cache that I think AMD's ever done, right? So exclusive caches, your L1 is not duplicated in your L2, gives you a great hit rate because you know, obviously you're not carving out part of your L2 for use as, as just storing L1 data, um, but there's actually a power penalty, right? So now if you need to uh, check for a coherency between cores, you have to do a lot of probing um, versus an inclusive cache where your uh, L1 is, is still stored in your L2. If you need to invalidate data or check for, co uh, for cache coherency across multiple cores, um, it's a lot simpler to do because you only have to go to a couple places and you know exactly where it is. Um, so that's a big step, and it also shows how things have changed, right? That we're no longer just concerned about performance, but, but power matters as well. Um, and then AMD is also using that L2 interface as the primary connection to the outside world. So that L2 is how the Northbridge talks to the CPU cores now. Um, it's not quite the ring bus that we have in Sandy Bridge, but it's clearly uh, kind of a step towards that direction. Um, but overall, like the architecture seems really cool. Like it seems like a real improvement over Bobcat. Um, this is obviously we're just talking about core level stuff here. There's no real indication of of what uh, 
you know, GPU technology it's going to be paired with and, and how the overall product is going to perform. But I don't know. I thought it was a, a good improvement and a good step forward. Um, I know by the time the podcast goes live, our article will probably be done on it. I, I just got pulled away with a bunch of other NDAs that went live this week, and I haven't had a chance to write any of this up. Um, any thoughts from you guys on Jaguar or... I know um, there's, there's the GPU is going to move to GC, uh, GCN, surely. Yeah, that would make sense, um, and it's still it, it'll be built at um, uh, Global Foundry's twenty eight nanometer. They they also made um, they did a lot of work internally to make it more process portable. Um, so again, leveraging a lot of the uh, learnings from the GPU side, um, so that they'd be able to switch between process nodes as well as you know foundries if necessary uh, a lot easier. But it's interesting. I, I would like to see it come out and be used in, you know, these Windows 8 tablets and stuff like that. Uh, I, I'd be very pleased if, if that's how, uh, how things ended up going. Yeah, I think there's a lot of space still for x86 to win at Windows 8 <laughs> in the tablet space. Yes. You know? No, I agree completely. And this is where AMD is going to continue to be relevant there. So, obviously, the fire is lit. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's true. I, I mean, I... It's it is nice to see so many x86 tablet wins in addition to uh, ARM based Windows RT wins. Um, but you know, in this case, more competition on the x86 space I, I think is is better, um, and it keeps pressure on Intel to kind of not be lax with Atom, and it uh, uh, potentially gives us some really good performing hardware in in these low cost points. And, and that's the other thing, right? Like I'm I'm I was worried that a lot of these Atom x86-based Windows 8 tablets would be really expensive, but the numbers I'm hearing are, are you know, well sub-500, right? We're talking, you know, people are targeting 400 and below at launch, which would be awesome if that, that they actually pull that off. Um, I think the days of trying to pursue really expensive tablets as your only game, I, I think those days are over. I think we'll obviously we'll see them with, you know, the Ivory Bridge and, and Haswell-based tablets, but uh, I'm glad to see that, that folks are kind of... Uh, uh, waking up and, and doing the right thing there. Um, and then the next architecture to talk about is Steamroller. So Steamroller is the third generation of, in, of AMD's bulldozer architecture. Um, so bulldozer was in the uh, AMD FX series, which didn't do all that well at launch. Piledriver was the next generation of that architecture that appeared in the Trinity APUs, which launched this year. And then Steamroller will be in the next generation of dedicated AMD CPUs as well as AMD APUs, uh, and that'll be shipping by the end of next year. Um, so Steamroller addresses a bunch of stuff that was kind of iffy with Bulldozer. Um, you get a, uh, a kind of a, a micro-op queue. It's not really a, a micro-op cache like you know Intel has in Sandy Bridge, but it, it does address uh, a major issue with Bulldozer. Um, they also double up uh, decode resources now per module. So, you know, AMD with Bulldozer has this kind of funny architecture where they've got a single unified front end and two integer, you know, two integer cores, two independent integer cores. Uh, so each with their own register file, each with their own set of execution units. They appear to the OS as two individual cores, even though they have the front end resources of a single core. Uh, so fetch and decode is all of a single core. Those two integer cores both share a single floating point core um, or, or, you know, a set of floating point resources. And the idea is that, uh, you know, 
all floating point hardware is really big, really power hungry. Um, and increasingly that FP work is moving over to the GPU, especially in the client space, especially in the server space. Uh, so it kind of makes sense for a dual core machine to, to have more integer resources that are smaller, more deterministic of, of uh, final performance than, than to kind of haphazardly duplicate floating point performance. That, that was the original idea at least. Um, one of the bottlenecks though is that you have the decode resources of a single core, but the integer execution resources of, of two cores. And it's oversimplifying it a bit, but that was one of the issues there. Um, so with Steamroller, AMD duplicates decode resources um, and they can operate in tandem. Uh, so in theory, that should be a big uplift to IPC um, and, and overall performance here. The big question, and, and of course, similar to, to Jaguar, there's a lot of um, kind of optimization work, learnings from Bulldozer and Piledriver that are, that are poured into Steamroller. Whereas Piledriver was uh, kind of a, uh, I, I would say it's a, a power optimization over Bulldozer. Uh, Steamroller ends up being more of a, a performance optimization over it instead. Um, obviously leveraging, you know, th there are power gains as well, um, but, but really leveraging a lot of the Piledriver stuff and, and then kind of focusing on performance. So the big question is obviously when that ships, it's going up against Haswell, is it going to be enough? Um, it's tough to tell on paper, right? Like I... I, I <laughs> yeah. I mean... Well, it, it has to battle on two fronts. Power... And performance, that because Haswell is obviously going to bring the big um, power improvements on the Intel side, and they're already slightly behind on the performance. I mean, they've already said they're going to stay out the high end. So, mid-range Haswell versus mid-range AMD. Well, and you're saying that's where they would be most competitive. That that's where they have to be competitive if they're staying out the high yeah. end space. I mean, I think mm. the thing is, they they said that they're staying out of the high end space, but they said that they're they're not no longer going to pursue that part of the race. I, and they actually didn't say it in these words; it was just kind of implied, right? Um, but there was always going to be that high end part. It's just going to be a rebrand a rebranded server part. Um, you know, and that's really interesting. Actually, uh, when I was talking to one of the uh, AMD fellows who had a lot of experience with Steamroller. Uh, one of the questions I asked him was, hey, look, have you guys, uh, I mean, Bulldozer and Piledriver, they, they don't have uh, really low latency L3 cache access. And, and that's kind of always been an issue. Um, and I was like, well, have you addressed that in Steamroller? And he said, well, you know, in our client space, in our client products, we don't ship parts with L3 caches. And then he had to correct himself and say, well, you know, we do kind of at the high end, but those are basically server parts. For everything else, for everything, you know, that really goes into the client space, there's no L3. So addressing L3 performance doesn't really make sense for us. Um, and I think that's really indicative of what AMD's focus is, right? They are focusing on the mainstream client space is, look, this is where money is. This is where we can be competitive. Um, and... You know, let's not focus as much on this kind of really, really high-end desktop space. Um, and then go after the server market by just being more competitive on pricing and, and you know, having architectures uh, that, that can do very, very well in, in certain targeted uh, workloads there. I think it's entirely possible for AMD to be competitive in the mid-range of the, the PC client space, simply because they can be more aggressive on cost than Intel can. Right there, I mean, they're technically a fabulous semiconductor now, right? They don't have to, uh, you know. Obviously, Wall Street wants them to hit high margins, but they no longer need to kind of prop up this this fab business of theirs. 
but yeah, I don't know. I, I would like to see. I would like to see a return to the early two thousands AMD. I, I just. I, I, I don't, think everybody wants to see that. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't. I, I don't know that Steamroller is going to get us there. But I, I think. One, I, I think it's important to recognize that, if and when Steamroller ships next year, that will be three AMD high-end AMD architectures. You know, let's say north of seventeen watts. Uh, that it will have delivered year after year. And even though they may not be faster than the equivalent Intels, that's a huge change from where AMD was just five years ago, right? Five years ago, if you had asked AMD to get two architectures out in a period of five years, that wasn't necessarily a guarantee. Um, But now they're managing this bulldozer line, getting a new part out every every 12 months or so, roughly. Um, And at the same time, managing this cat line uh, you know, you were, were, what, two years or so basically away from the introduction of Bobcat. There was a little bit of a refresh in between. Um, but there, I mean, AMD hasn't pumped out this many unique designs or iterative, uh, iterative designs ever in its history. And I think that's, that's worth something, right? Like, that's important to note. Um, and I think over a long enough scale, if they can continue to do this, Inevitably, they have to catch up, right? Like, it's... uh... Hmm. Well, I mean, on the other side, people need to realize that you need to be a champion of AMD because they're going to force everybody to sort of be more competitive. Yes. Right? Like, this is the old argument that everybody makes. You know, like, you need to be a champion of both rather than just a fanboy of one because one is the catalyst that pushes the other to go refresh correct right like they're just not going to do it forever on their own volition you know yeah no that's very true i i think you you absolutely have to be uh you buy whatever is the best that's out there but you need to support both companies right they they uh, like i said i mean without arm and the entire arm ecosystem we would not yeah. have you know <laughs> we would 20... never have we would have the same crusty atom forever exactly right like we, it's it's uh that's exactly what would happen um and without amd we would have never gotten you know to to sandy bridge and where we are today uh we would have had another handful of years of penning four and then uh yeah maybe we'd still be on core based market architectures like the old conroe derivative stuff right it, it's it's uh a desire to not be upset again like they were uh, like intel was back in the k7 days uh, and k8 days is is really what lit the fire up and and you know got them moving um but yeah that's the that's the silicon update for this week um other stuff that uh i've been working on i've been playing in the thunderbolt space a bit western digital released this uh my book velociraptor duo so the my book was this you know, external drive chassis. Um, the MyBook Thunderbolt Duo is this external two drive chassis with Thunderbolt port on it. And uh, it had two caviar, three and a half inch caviar green drives. Um, and, and that actually, you know, Thunderbolt, external Thunderbolt chassis, other than, you know, that Buffalo mini station that you reviewed, Brian, for the most part, haven't been that affordable. Um, but yep. for somewhere like, I don't know, 700 bucks or so, you could get this MyBook, six terabytes of storage, um, reasonably priced in terms of dollars per gigabyte. You're looking at like sub 20 cents 
per, per gigabyte, which is horrible if you're talking about internal storage, but for an external thermal chassis, it's, it's not bad. Um, so, so this week or, or last week, um, Western Digital says, okay, you know, we take the same chassis and we put 10,000 RPM Velociraptors in it. And that ups the cost per gigabyte to like 45 cents per gigabyte. And <laughs> I, I, I don't know, like, I think the market for, for 10,000 RPM hard drives, I, I don't know that that exists anymore, right? And this is the feedback I gave uh, Western Digital when, when it first briefed me on the Velociraptors. I get it, right? If someone's building an insane desktop and they've got SSDs and they want the absolute fastest hard drives to pair up with those SSDs for, for kind of mass storage, I get that. But I don't know how big of a market that is. Right? Would either of you throw Velociraptors in your desktop? Um, when it comes to storage, I try and populate with the biggest hard drives possible due to the limited number of ports. So mm, that's so, interesting. Well, so, that's so, a good idea. So, so when um, when I first was looking for storage, I got a terabyte and a half hard drive, and then since then I've added a two terabyte hard drive, and now I've added two three terabyte hard drives. I just I just try and buy the biggest on the market, which is also relatively priced so no, I, yeah I, I run a velociraptor in the ssd caching thing like that's that's the big storage thing and then <clears throat> of course there's a vertex three i believe interesting so why did you use the velociraptor i mean did you just want the fastest hard drive there like what do you use that drive for well, I mean, it's just it's just the OS, and then I also run Ubuntu off of it. Okay. But the reason, so I mean, the original reason was that I asked you if I could get one of your Velociraptors to see if I could get it in the Xbox. <laughs> Remember? <laughs> okay. It was like a year ago, and and it would work except for I need a whole new five volt rail to support the Velociraptor because, and, and I discovered that the Xbox or the new Xbox is engineered to only have I believe the twelve volt rail. Whereas the Velociraptor uses both the 12 volt and 5 volts, but anyway, so I, I had that all set up, but it wouldn't work unless I like had a power supply or just ran wires. And I was like, "This is I'm too lazy to do this right now." <laughs> so I put the drive aside, and then I built my, you know, the Z68 based machine, and then it was just there, like literally on the desk. And I was like, "Well, I'll just use this." And then if okay. I if I need it, then I'll just nuke it. I don't really care. <laughs> so okay. there wasn't any like. There wasn't any thought or, you know, like it wasn't contrived, I okay. guess. This was just, it was the most physically convenient thing for you to put in there. <laughs> I mean, and it's also fast, you know, I was like, well, <laughs> if I'm going to be running this SSD caching thing that isn't really, isn't really an SSD and it isn't really a hard drive, well, I might as well just like have the LBAs that aren't cached be as fast as possible. Yeah. So, I mean, like it sort of made sense. Like I could have just, you know... I don't know. That's the reason. So, but so, so <laughs> what's the size of your SSD and Velociraptor in that configuration? And I believe it's sixty gigs. It's not. It's not very big at all because it's just the the cache and the Velociraptor. I believe it's the three hundred gig one. Isn't there like a three fifty or three hundred? It's that one. Yeah. So it's the second generation Velociraptor, right? Yeah, that's right. Right, because the third gen hit a terabyte. So no, the third gen hit a terabyte, right? That was the one that we just reviewed this year. Um, the second gen hit 600, and then the first gen was 150. That's the one I have. Okay. I could be wrong. Um, I mean, it's hard drives. Like, it's, it's, it's not at the front of my mind cache. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, I, I guess, so Brian, the question is if you had the SSDs, right? Because like clearly at this point you have the disease, you have to have an SSD. Yeah. And you're like, look, I, but I, can't, I need more than 256 or 512 gigs of storage. And you go out, what drives are you buying? Just going to buy some, probably the three terabyte WD greens. Okay, so exactly, you know? right? That's that's what I prefer. I want something that's... Because there's the difference in 7,254 RPM drives was huge when that's all you could get. But it's so... Yeah. It's like peeing in the ocean, right? Like, compared to an SSD, it's not... I mean, you're not increasing the salinity level <laughs> of the ocean This is like when you, when you first told me about that you were testing these, you were like, it does 400 megabytes per second. Yeah. So <laughs> and it was like, that's slow. <laughs> I know, and... and, it's, and I was like, we're living in the future where 400 megabytes per second is slow. But, you know, yeah, I can see that. It's the fastest dual drive. So this MyBook Velociraptor Duo has two 10,000 RPM Velociraptors at one terabyte each in a software RAID 0. And that's good for almost 400 megs a second of sequential I.O. And you get that for 900 bucks. And one, 900 bucks is really expensive. Two, you know, even if you take into account the Thunderbolt drives are expensive, um... That's expensive on a cost per gigabyte basis, right? That's over 3x the cost per gigabyte of, you know, the non-Velociraptor uh, MyBook Thunderbolt Duo. And then you're only getting 400 megabytes per second out of it, right? Like, it's, it's one SSD does better than that. And I get that you don't get two terabytes out of that, but you... Two terabytes is actually not a lot, right? You can go and get six terabytes out of a, a normal MyBook uh, Thunderbolt Duo and, and get, you know, a couple hundred megabytes per second. But it's just... I don't know. It, it, it seems like a very niche product. Um, and yeah, 400 megs a second is no longer fast, right? For 900 bucks, I, I need at least 2x that. Well, you know, uh, I feel like the application there is probably some sort of like, you know, like 4K video editing or, <clears throat> you know, like if you have a red camera, you're dealing with really, you need the lots of storage. And so maybe for that, for that reason, SSDs are still out of your price range. But you do need the fast sequential I.O. because you're dealing with, you know, like either 4K uncompressed video or, you know, like very, very big images or, I mean, maybe that that's always sort of been the, the use case that I see for these things. Like, and sort of like when I squint at it is like a studio editing, you know, like these very high resolution video files. And I, I mean, that must exist somewhere, but obviously it's, it's not something I do every day. Yeah. No, I, clearly, and, and that's really what, uh, you know, Western Digital targeted with the Velociraptor, um, what, with the latest one that launched it, right? It, it's that, um, hey, this is going after, uh, you know, there is this category of creative professionals that need storage, <laughs> right? That's got to be such a tiny market, too, though. It is, and I know a lot of the SSD guys are going after those folks, right? Because, uh, yeah, I remember talking to Patriot, and they were like, look, there's this whole group of creative professionals that their jobs become easier if they move to SSDs. And that's like an untapped market for us. We need to just sell tons of, we need to target those guys because they their lives can be made a lot easier by using our product. Um, so I feel like even that's pretty finite, right? We're talking about, you can get a one terabyte SSD today Right, OCZ will build you a custom one based on Octane or whatever. And I'm guessing Vertex 4, you can do the same. But next year, for 
you know, a bit more expensive than you're paying for a 512 gig SSD today. So like, you know, somewhere in the 700 to $1,000 range, um, you'll be able to get a one terabyte SSD. And then that price will come down and, and that'll be based on 128 gig, gigabit um, uh, IMFT 20 nanometer NAND, right? So you, you kind of get that same number of packaging, smaller geometries lets us kind of cram more per die. Um, so, you know, then you're looking at a terabyte for less than $1,000, let's say, when, when prices settle. And that'll eventually get down to, you know, over the next 12 months after that, that'll get down to like six or 700 bucks per, uh, per terabyte SSD. And, and now we start getting into some really, really tempting price ranges uh, for capacities where, I don't know, I don't, I don't know that I see a desire to go for really high performance hard drive storage. Just like I said, get something that, uh, like you said, get, get something that's spins slowly and, and doesn't use a lot of power and just gives you tons of space. Yeah, that's that dollar per gigabyte sort of point that everybody wants. You know, and you were pointing out that that already has been crossed if you get lucky. Oh, yeah, there was like a, there was 128 gig Vertex 3. So Sandforce base, you know, you have to be okay with that. But it's still way better than a hard drive, um, assuming it doesn't, like, besod your computer. Um, <laughs> but there was 128 yep. gig Vertex 3 for 60 bucks after mail-in rebate. What? Six? Yeah, 60, six zero. Oh, okay. $60. Um, there was a UK retailer recently that um, offered Vertex 2 E's, so the Vertex 2 refresh or something or other, for yeah. 43 pounds, including tax, which is like 60 after tax. And they for, did this on the order and sold out within a few hours. What, what capacity? Wow. So 100, 120 gig Vertex 2 E's. That's so awesome. SATA yes, 2. Yeah. But still, it's a 120 gigabyte SSD, perfect for my father or my brother. Just Absolutely. There. Like, I, I won't build... So that's like 50 cents a gigabyte. So, yeah, I mean, it, it looks like that, that price point exists, but when you get lucky... Yeah, when the you, sales I are mean, on. the thing is, you, you have to... NAND pricing is so volatile that these things have been happening, like, constantly. Um, I was talking to, to a friend of mine who got a <clears throat> 256 gig... Agility 4, right? So it's not the fastest 6 gigabit SATA drive in the world. It's, it's actually among the slowest. A 256 gig drive for $129 after mail-in rebate. Nice. And, I mean, that's, I can live with a 256 as my, as my boot drive, right? Like, that's a, that's a good size. Get two, raid them, and then you're sorted for space. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I think we're, we are definitely getting into this kind of golden age of, of SSDs here, which is awesome to see. Um, and it doesn't feel like it took all that long either. Um, I mean, I guess it has been five years since the, uh, four or five years since the, the MLC drives first started getting popular. Um, the counter argument with pricing though is on the hard drive side. I mean, ever since the Titan floods, normal hard drives, mechanical hard drives have been expensive. They're still just under twice the cost per gigabyte of what they were, at least over here in the UK. Um, do you think they're perhaps being artificially raised or SSDs are having an effect, or is it just taking that long to get back down to previous levels? I don't know. I mean, that's that's actually a really good question. Um, I, I know the... Uh... I know there was a lot of discussion about pricing and stuff like that um, at the end of last year. 
Um, but I honestly, I hadn't been tracking drive prices for quite a while. I, I mean, the last time I looked at just when I was doing this Velociraptor Duo review, um, that that's the last time I, I you know, I had a reason to, to check what hard drive pricing was per gigabyte. Um, I mean, I think SSDs have to be making an impact, right? Especially as the world goes to Ultrabooks, MacBook Air, stuff like that, where there's no room for a hard drive. Um, and I know Seagate's trying to get their hybrid drive in there to kind of meet Ultrabook specs. Um, so, you know, it'll, it'll start to get some of that business. But, you know, I, I don't see any growth there, um, you know, for the most part. And as a result, yeah, I mean, I have to feel like that's having some, somewhat of an impact. So, and, and that's so the, other... the prices are being kept high just because they can't sell the volume, perhaps. It's. I mean, I'm. I'm not an analyst of that kind of stuff, right? Like, I. I and I don't want to speculate as to why they are where they are. Um, but. But I. I mean, the fact of the matter is, look, if you're buying any of these kind of really slim, sexy, ultra thin notebooks now, there's no hard drive that comes with it. And the market is going towards that, right? And and even in you know the bigger machines that are high performance. No one's asking for hard drives anymore, right? And everyone wants uh, some sort of solid-state storage. Yeah, but don't they use that in conjunction with a hard drive? I mean, like, there's this move to the cloud, right? But the, the, the amount of storage we're using, like, the net storage use of humanity is still increasing. It is. Right? So where do those hard drives go? They just go somewhere you don't see them. They go, you know, into AWS. They go into Google. Google's, com- you know, compute cluster yes they go into like other other things that are sort of invisible to us but that's where all the storage is you know or home nas's yeah that too that too i mean that's where i put all my big storage right like i just have like two raid fives and all the stuff sits there yeah and then in in the you know like all the desktops and notebooks are sort of thin clients you know and that all the documents that i need are on dropbox and then all the music and videos are either on the on the you know the nas or up in the cloud you know like google music or something but i mean on a net on a you know like net drive you know like disk use or you know human content generation is still getting bigger so there must still be people buying just like ungodly amounts of hard drives right because you need you need those especially when you buy 42 megapixel cameras that are also phones yeah 40, 40, yeah. <laughs> hey, but that's a 41 megapixel camera phone that can take great 8 megapixel stills. That's how it's sold. <laughs> that's because oversampling. <laughs> um, no, I mean, so that is true, right? Obviously, a lot of storage goes in the enterprise, and enterprise SSDs are nowhere near as cost competitive as they are um, in the consumer space. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think... Um, the hard drive market isn't going away, um, and there's likely still great growth in enterprise. Um, I, I guess I, I don't know. I'm I'm still upset slash disappointed at the lax adoption of solid state storage by the hard drive vendors. Right? It seems like they've got the right channel and the right motivation to partake in both markets, but they've just kind of struggled there. Um, and, and I don't know, I, I mean, I haven't had enough personal experience watching these massive tech evolutions unfold. And I wonder what happens here, right? In a, in a few years, does, does Seagate and Western Journal, do they just buy whoever 
remains at the top in the SSD space, or or do these SSD companies become so big and successful that they buy the hard drive guys? Well, so yeah, that's a really good question. So think of all the people who have gone into SSDs, like OCZ, they were memory, and now they've gone into NAND. And then Corsair, hmm. Corsair have now done the same with uh, the LAMD controller. Mm-hmm. But but they did so out of necessity, right? Out of a, a uh, in pursuit of the next big high margin product, because memory just became completely commoditized. Um, and in consumer SSDs, and the same thing happened, right? So so memory became completely commoditized. You could no longer differentiate. You know, everyone's memory was basically the same. Um, you could hit higher overclocks, but everyone ended up buying the stuff that that wasn't your premium product. Um, so so that all happened, and and then everyone moved to SSDs, and then there was this whole race to the bottom in terms of consumer SSD pricing. So that no longer became really competitive, um, and then. Everyone saw that coming, so they all moved into enterprise SSDs. And you know, maybe enterprise, the enterprise space has a bit more longevity because people are willing to pay a considerable premium for reliability and, and known good solutions. But I, I don't know how long that lasts, or maybe that does last indefinitely. Maybe that's why so many people always love to get into the IT slash enterprise space. Um, anyways, on the SSD front, so I, I reviewed this Velociraptor Duo thing, which every comment, at least the, the first 10, were all who would pay 900 bucks for this thing. <laughs> it's too expensive. Yeah, and, and I, I mean, I agree, right? Like, I'm, I'm really curious to see internally what Western Digital thinks about all of that. Um, but Western Digital has always been really nice to work with. Like, they, I don't get yelled at when things like that happen, um, which is definitely not the rule, right? Like, there are companies that do not respond gracefully to things that don't go their way. So, so kudos to WD over there. Um, so I reviewed that, and, and I'm working on now, which, which actually should be live by the time the podcast goes up, um, the Promise Pegasus J2. So it's another Thunderbolt chassis, but this one's kind of neat. Um, Promise was obviously one of the first to bring Thunderbolt to market, with the, the or actually the first to ship Thunderbolt uh, in an external storage device um, with the Pegasus R series. So that was one of those either four or six bay, three and a half inch, Thunderbolt enclosure things uh, you could get out of a stock 12 terabyte configuration in a RAID 5, you'd get like 700 megs per second out of it. Um, decent performance, pretty pricey. You know, obviously you're looking at, uh, you know, over $1,100 for four terabyte uh, or at $1,100 for four terabytes all the way up to $3,000 for 18 terabytes. Um, you know, so in a lot of cases, it's just as expensive as the computer you're hooking it up to. But, you know, it, it worked. Um, the biggest issues with it, one, uh, it's cost two, it still used mechanical storage. So the J2 is a really friggin' tiny Pegasus. Um, and instead of just taking, you know, a lot of the other Thunderbolt guys have just taken, uh, like an SSD or two SSDs and put them in an enclosure, uh, two, two and a half inch SSDs. So promise took two MSATA SSDs and put them in an internal RAID 0 behind an AS Media uh, SATA controller. Um, so it's a still a software RAID 0. You know, the, the RAID happens in, in OS X or in Windows. But you get this really tiny chassis. Um, they also did some software work on it. Uh, it. Really tiny because obviously two MSATA SSDs don't take up a lot of space. Um, they also did software work on it. So the firmware on the drives and on the uh, that, that feeds the 
uh, AS Media SATA controller can toggle between two different performance modes. And the reason being that Thunderbolt, the Thunderbolt spec only allows something like 18 watts to be delivered um, from the port to the device. So that includes, you know, the watt or so for the cable, um, the Thunderbolt controller, and in this case, the SATA controller and two SSDs. Now, you've seen from our reviews, like a single six gigabit SSD can be good for three to five watts, and you've got two of them in there, right? So you don't, it's not too far-fetched that that combination alone would exceed 10 watts. So what Promise does is, if you just plug it into Thunderbolt, you don't need any external power, you get reduced performance, so they throttle performance to reduce power consumption from the SSDs, but it's bus-powered. And there's a little green light on the back of the unit that tells you when it's bus-powered. They also ship it with a AC adapter. If you plug in the AC adapter, the LED light goes from green to blue, and you get much better performance. Um, and it's all seamless. There's no software changing. There's nothing you have to do. It's just the presence of you know, a DC input determines what performance mode it operates in. Um, and the performance is really good. You actually get like around 800 megabytes per second uh, on sequential reads and around 500 megs a second sequential writes um, from this tiny little chassis. And like that's what Thunderbolt's supposed to be about. Now, the downside obviously is uh, capacity. Um, it's only going to be available. It launches at 256 gigs and 512 gigs. Um, so you, there's definitely not a lot of storage. Um, the other downside is pricing. Promise hasn't announced it yet, but given that Lassie's SSD-based Thunderbolt devices are priced around $3 a gigabyte, it doesn't look good that this thing is going to be very affordable. Um, so those are the two downsides. There's a third downside, which is even though there are really good MSATA SSDs on the market, so Crucial has an M4 um, that, which we reviewed, that you can get an MSATA form, and it's just as fast as the 2.5-inch drive. It's just MSATA, which is awesome. Um, even though there are good MSATA drives on the market today, Promise integrated some Fizon-based drives, and Fizon is kind of like the, I don't know, the new J-Micron, right? So <laughs> okay. they're, o they're, I mean, they're okay in terms of sequential I.O. Like I said, you can hit almost 800 megs a second um, you know, when you're not bus powered and when you're bus powered, I think it's like 600 megs a second from two drives, which is really good. But random IO is not so great. Um, 40 megs a second random reads, which is good. Uh, single digit to maybe, you know, a few hundred kilobytes per second for random write performance. Um, the oh, drive, no. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's bad. I mean, it's just, it, like I said, it's the new J-Micron, right? So for, for anyone doing sequential work, it's great. It's all the random I.O. stuff um, on the right side that's a problem. Um, and the other problem is, you know, once the drive gets full and you start doing additional writes on top of that, it's the same kind of stuff that we saw with, with you know, the really cheap J-Micron stuff in the, the early days. So th those are the three downsides to it. But, but they definitely get kudos and, and points for a unique design. I like the idea of using MSATA in that form factor. Um, and in a couple of years, the capacity thing becomes a non-issue, right? You can already have 512 gig MSATA drives today. So you could theoretically build a one terabyte one of these things. Um, and then next year you'd build a two terabyte version. Um, so they get points for innovation, points for having something cool. I, I don't know about mass appeal um, uh, just because of pricing and because and again, we're talking Fizon based drives. But um, so that's kind of interesting. Does it come apart easily? Yes. Wait, you said it's just a couple screws, right? Or is, yep. am I getting that confused with the other one? No, no, it's it's awesome. It is three screws, 
two are underneath two plastic feet or rubber feet, and then the third is in the middle of the drive. Um, and it actually has like a little tiny notebook fan. Looks like a fan out of like a MacBook Air. Um, and it it doesn't get loud. It's just there. Cause I mean, if you're pushing 800 megs a second through Silicon, it, it tends to produce heat. Did Um, it come on? Did you, did you force it to come on at one point? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just me testing it makes the fan turn on. That's good. Um, I'm curious. So then do they, do they draw, how much power do they draw through the AC adapter? That's the I haven't measured that yet. I need to, I need to measure that. Um, I, I would assume, and I don't know if they borrow some from Thunderbolt and, and some from that. That's that's the last yeah. thing I have to do um, uh, in, in the review. So I guess that'll already be published when, when this uh, podcast goes live. So It'll be interesting to see um, the power that it draws, whether you could have gotten that from two or three USB ports. That's true. Yeah, that's that's actually, I got another device in that is this, um, I don't remember the full name. It's, it's one of the... Uh, uh, high point external USB drive things. It's got two three and a half inch caddies and two independent USB three inputs, right? So you can actually get full bandwidth um, to each drive, which is kind of interesting. Huh, that's weird. Yeah, right. Like, so most USB three enclosures, you know, they share that one USB connection. Here, you just plug into two different ports and you get five gigabit per port. So it's kind of like a poor man's Thunderbolt without running DisplayPort. Well, that's not bad. No, I, I think, you know, for someone who just wants high-performance storage, USB 3.0 likely makes the most sense. Um, See, I think we're looking at a lot of external storage because, again, all these small form-factor devices, you know, like the Ultrabooks, MacBook Air, all these, you know, like even the Retina MacBook Pro, which is a MacBook Air. yeah. They all feature, you know, like very restrained, you know, like small amounts of storage under one terabyte, under 500 gigs, most often below two, 250, you know, like or around 250. And then that's sort of driving the adoption of this external storage as the backup, you know, as the where you're going to park all your other stuff. No, I agree. And I don't even think it's that right. Like even if you look at uh, the 15 inch MacBook Pro, right, that, there was still not enough storage in that for me. You know, even though I had like I had an SSD, well, I had two SSDs in there. Um, but even if you go SSD plus a, a two and a half inch drive, I have more content that I can fiddle on all of that. Really, you have more than um, one terabyte. I mean, I run like the four eighty and then a five hundred. Uh, you know, like the XT. See, you know, the momentous XT. Yeah, and I've never really even used more than maybe half of it. Oh, no, I definitely have more. Well, okay, so part of it is it lets me be lazy about deleting stuff. But then the other part is, like, movies and all kinds of, like, music and, you know, all my, like, Anantech benchmarks and all that stuff. I can't keep that all there. Gotcha, okay. Have it, have it on the oh. NAS. Yeah, exactly. Um, interesting you're saying about the two M SATA drives. I saw, admittedly through Facebook, um, an MSI laptop a gaming laptop which uses two MSATA drives in RAID 0 for performance as part of the package. Yeah. MSATA makes a lot of sense, right? Because it's not a... It's no slower than SATA. Yeah. Um, if you Just can... and Two smaller you can drives. Get, yeah, you can get octal, octal die uh, NAND packages, right? So you can get 64 gigs on a single NAND package. And on these MSATA drives, you can usually fit four of them on there. Um, 
so so there's I don't know there's room for this stuff. It's yeah, it. I mean clearly it's the way around the like SATA enclosure problem. Yes. You know, like that's the thing is that like nobody there's no need to have this huge box, right? So everybody <clears throat> sort of like made their own, and then thankfully we got MSATA. But yes. people are still making their own. I'm looking at you, Apple. Yeah, but, I, we um, need. We clearly need. So <laughs> MSATA is admittedly like kind of a weird shape, uh-huh, right? Yeah. Like it, they they standardized on it because that was the sta- that was the size for mini PCIe, and it made sense at the time. Um, but clearly, like people want things that'll kind of butt up nicely against a battery, right? And that are nice and skinny and long, and and you know more of that instead of the kind of fat square shape or, or fat rectangle. Um, mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I think we just need another standard there, right? I don't care what you, I mean, like, long MSATA or, or whatever you want to call it, <laughs> right? But we, we clearly need another standard there. And the other thing we need another standard is we need, the SODIM has been around for way too long. We need a smaller form factor, thinner profile SODIM replacement. Maybe like half height? Well, so I'm almost wondering if we don't... Like a long skinny one? But and then you just put that long skinny RAM up against your long skinny solid state drive. That so seems logical. You could do that, but I'm almost wondering why not ditch the PCB in- entirely and and just have DRAM sockets on the board that you can populate. Huh. Hmm. Right, like everyone wants to put this stuff on board anyways, which is fine. Just so wait, but then you're limited by the number of pads that you have. Yeah, but you, I mean, you're always limited by that anyways, right? Instead of being, so you'd have like eight sockets for DRAM devices and you can buy higher density DRAM devices. Boy, that's really scary for the remaining RAM manufacturers, isn't it? Because then you can just go shop for your, your packages. That's true. I mean, but admittedly, like, there is still that whole channel, right? Samsung doesn't really, well, Samsung's the exception, but like Hynix doesn't, uh, uh, sell directly to consumers, right? Mm-hmm. Like they don't have yeah. that that channel established, so there's still room for the kind of middleman. But I, I mean, I, I don't know if that's too asking too much. Like if you know everyone really liked the SODIM because you just pop it in and it works. Um, no one really likes installing, you know, ICs. But I feel like that you know if we're I would rather have that than everyone goes to appliance like pcs where you can't upgrade memory ever like you just have to throw away the machine Mm -hmm. yeah or upgrade the processor when they start putting memory on it well so the processor you know the benefit of soldering on there is the processor is a very complex device you know you've got a thousand pins um that became that becomes a lot easier to mount and route if you can just solder on board but memory socket adds z profile yes yeah But you don't have, like, uh, also on top of that that Z height, you know, you have to deal with the heat sink and all that other stuff, which you don't have to deal with with memory, right? So I feel like you still have some Z room to work with. Hmm. That's an interesting theory. I'd love to see that, but I just don't think anybody's going to do it, right? I know. Unfortunately, the integration is moving the other direction where it's like what you get is what you get when you buy it. And then when you're done, it's going to go in the garbage. So it just becomes like a car or anything else. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, the same sort of thing with a car. Like, there's no standard. Well, there are some standards, but it's it's obfuscated and it's per per model per line. Yeah. So it, this kind of um, 
kind of segues into this next thing that Brian, you and I were talking about, which is, you know, with, with Microsoft, when it announced Surface, and Google now owns Motorola, and, and obviously Apple's been vertically integrated, um, what does this mean for the PC OEMs? Right, like it's it's clearly Microsoft didn't come out, and and they're not coming out and saying, uh, "Hey, we're going to build every tablet and every phone and everything in the future. We're going to build ourselves." Um, but clearly, a lot of the PC OEMs were unhappy with Microsoft coming out with its own branded Windows Eight and Windows RT tablets. Do yeah, we... and they, it wasn't like they came out after either. It was like this is the first one we're going to talk about. Correct. So. I mean, you brought this up. I mean, does this does this mean that the traditional OEMs that they go away? Well, I mean, I, th- I think if you look at the trend, it's sort of it's sort of easy to extrapolate. Obviously, Apple has that integration, right? And for the longest time, that was their secret sauce at some high level. And then Google sort of understood this, and it started out as sort of a reference design, right? Like the Nexus phone was a development device. Like the original Nexus one was, and and bef- before that, even the G1 were sort of these development devices. In fact, the G1, remember, was sold as a developer phone. Yeah. And then that sort of became this Nexus thing. And then the Nexus thing sort of gradually became more. And then it was sold as like, this is the like purest sense of Google's vision. And now the Nexus 7 is this mass market device that everybody has sort of you know, like sort of rallied behind as an example of this is why you need that integration between whoever is making the OS and and whoever's going to make the hardware. And really, there's no there's no intermediate, you know, like there's no intermediate place for an OEM to sit anymore. Yeah. And in terms of like the best experience is now the one that's the this is the what the software is developed for. And this is the canonical experience that everybody's going to experience, you know, deal with. So in the Nexus 7 case, though, that device is still made by Asus, who I'm assuming makes a little bit of money off of it. Um, That's right. Yeah. And, so, and that, was my, that was the thing I discussed with you, too, is that they don't go away in the traditional sense. They go away in that they're, they're no longer, you know, like, we need to value-add software. We need to make our own revision of this, this hardware platform that, are, that is already established as, you know, like, sort of a baseline it's it's now you know like we have this sort of in it, this sort of discussion that takes place behind the scenes, and the result is this platform that then one party can build their software to, and then that that moves on as you know like the sort of the platform that everybody gets behind, you know, and it's obvious that when when you're looking at and shopping for these these devices, there's always one that sort of becomes the device, right? And like for Android 4.1, it's obvious that the device is the Galaxy Nexus and the Nexus 7. And likewise, it's it's looking like if you're in the Windows RT and Windows 8 space, the two are the Surface and the Surface, you know, like Surface RT and the Surface 8 Pro. Those are the canonical devices, right? So that's the analog that I'm sort of drawing. What do you think long term happens to these other OEMs then, right? So what happens to Dell and HP? Do they do they just fight to the death until, you know, only one or two become the like? Does it turn into like the, uh, uh, 
you know, the high end military industry, right? Like where you have like a yeah. couple, you have like Boeing. I, I, th- and- I don't know. I, I'm not going to say that I know the answer, right? Because this is sort of like a very high level, what's going to happen to this industry thing. But at some level, I don't think they're ever going to give up this sort of like build to order sort of business where the enterprise has very specific needs that need to be met and aren't only, you know, like aren't served by whatever the the canonical device is that that particular platform serves. Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? And yes. that, that will be the niche that they survive in. And then obviously people who don't want, who need some specific feature that isn't delivered by the reference device will be served by these other platforms. But again, the one that's sort of like going to be two standard deviations away in terms of sales is always going to be this this headliner right and then that's where the updates get delivered first that's where the you know, like the innovation happens first and then it trickles down later and that's ultimately for me what makes the sale yeah so the OEMs are going to stick to medical devices military you know the specific vendor who wants 10,000 units of specialized hardware rather than the generic one off the shelf yeah, at some level, I think that's the future, right? Or businesses that, you know, like, we want a specific chassis that does this or that. We'll see. I don't know. That's that. That's at a high level what I would say. No, I mean, I, I it's clearly something's going to happen, right? Um, it, it's curious. You know, Microsoft's in an interesting position where it used to make a ton of money. I mean, it still does, selling Windows and Office, the price to consumers of those two types of products has come down considerably, right? Consumers don't want to pay $150 to $300 for Office anymore. Um, and they don't want to pay $150 to $200 something for an OS anymore. Yeah. Um, and, and how Microsoft deals with that change, right? If, if the way it deals with that change is by kind of becoming this vertically integrated hardware manufacturer, um, it, it'll be curious to see what happens there. Um, yeah, I think the evolution that you can you can look at and say this is this is sort of like the the path that it's going to follow is the console space, right? Like Microsoft already has a hardware business, you know, and a, and a successful one. You know, the Red Ring of Death notwithstanding, like if that <laughs> didn't happen, this would be even more profitable. Yeah, and so. It's obvious to see that, you know, like there's no OS license there, even though there is an OS that clearly is, you know, like somebody is doing that internal accounting and paying another, like maybe business division. So then this sort of becomes the same thing when we like, well, you're selling, you're selling a tablet. Well, we're still selling somebody a Windows RT or a Windows 8 license. It's just us, right? Yeah, but so the, the point is that, that doesn't go away. I guess that only works if Microsoft makes the hardware, right? That 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 essentially um, the only way for Microsoft to survive survive like that is if it becomes the only good provider of hardware, um, which has to come at the expense of the OEMs. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, I think at a higher level, again, this becomes who knows who knows the platform best, and ultimately, whoever is writing the software knows the platform best. I think that's that age-old argument, but I think there's a lot there's a lot to be said for it, and I mean we'll see. I, I mean at the current at the current state of things, the SOC vendors do a lot of the software development for you know like here's a reference board and here's all the drivers, the Linux kernel, all this other stuff. 
that's going to work. And then you just sort of like build in what your extras are. You know, it's sort of like you just drag, you just link everything together. Um, but I, I think that going forward, that's going to become even more complicated. It forces the OEMs to innovate. I mean, if if everybody if Microsoft comes out with a device, but an OEM comes out with a killer feature, despite the fact it may That's be true. something else, you know, people will migrate. It, it forces innovation. So far, we have not seen most of the OEMs doing that. All of the killer features they've introduced have always been gimmicks. Um, there have been a few uh, kind of high-profile exceptions. I think what Asus did on the Transformer series... Um, clearly that resonated very well. It was just paired, in that case, it was paired with the wrong software. Um, it really needed Windows 8 to shine. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I would hope uh, that that the result is the OEMs pour more money into R&D, pour more into kind of building something that's, you know, better, faster, cooler. But I don't know, I guess we'll see. Um, so Brian, there's a bunch of stuff that we have here that we can talk about. I don't know that we'll have time to get to all of it. What um, we should what, talk about the iPhone NFC thing. I think that needs discussing a little uh, bit. Okay. <laughs> um, so iPhone NFC. Um, uh, there was a. This is the problem with the way. You know, it's unfortunate, right? Like we we had tech media for so long was this kind of te- online tech media for so long was this kind of example of, of how things could be different, right? We, we didn't have to make the same mistakes that, that like North American cable TV news did. Um, that we could be well-researched and, and didn't have to play the same kind of sensationalist games to get people to look at us and, and listen and to build audiences. Um, but I guess we threw all of that out the window because now we're just the same. <laughs> like we just, it's the same stuff, right? Like it, it's the same talking heads you have on TV that are just kind of repeating what the teleprompter says, we now have in the tech space. And, and it's just like, it's, uh, you know, I heard this and I don't really know anything about it, but I'm going to repeat it. And that's just the news cycle. And I'll just keep repeating it because that's, that's how the only way I know for people to come and read it. Um, and it's really unfortunate. And, and maybe we do another podcast where I complain about that for a really long time. But with the result of this... I think that needs to happen because yeah. that is definitely a thesis of I, yours. It and is. And it's very true and well well um, backed up by just like general trends. Like it doesn't... So, and that's yeah. the thing. It doesn't have to be this way, right? Like if you treat... You know, one of the things that, that I always believe is that if you treat your audience like idiots then you're going to attract idiots. Like it's your readership is a reflection of your writers. And if you have dumb readers, it's likely because you don't have the best writers. And I I don't know. I like, I always look at us as as being very subservient to our readership. And I'm always very, very impressed in just how much, what was the, the, there was one line that came out out of your, uh, you know, you wrote the section about 3.8 volt battery chemistry in the new iPhone and one of the commenters just said the like the most intelligent, hilarious thing ever as a response. Do you remember what he posted? No, I, I don't. I mean, well, maybe it was that. I think the thing there is that a lot of people don't really care until they see it in Apple space for some reason. Yeah. Right. Uh, oh, I think the comment was you don't just call up the battery fairy and ask her to set your battery to a certain voltage. 
Yes. No, that was yeah. an awesome comment, right? Like it's in, and it just shows understanding of, of all of this stuff, which is amazing, right? So anyways, long story short, um, someone said, hey, here's a picture of some iPhone internals and here's a chip with a, a, an EMI can over it. So you can't even see the markings of the chip. But here's something that is a square shape and NFC controllers happen to be square shapes. So... Therefore, the next iPhone must have NFC support because we found this square-shaped EMI can on it. Which makes no sense at all. No, like, like it's... There's just <laughs> nothing in that picture that you could say is NFC. Like even squinting at it. <laughs> well, because it's, it's a piece of metal. It's a square piece of metal that yeah. we, things have gotten so bad that we will now correlate that to, we as a, as a tech society online, will now correlate that to a feature. Um, and that's absurd. Well, I think people want to, they have this weird expectation list, and the expectation list, they try to map to things. Like, they just try to establish this one-to-one -one mapping in, like, sort of their own imagined way. And then... Like, if it doesn't fit logic, they're just like, we don't care. We're going to, like, force it to fit. Yeah, and, and people look for... Expectations get more and more absurd until we're just looking at something that's, like, not possible at all. Yes. Unless, unless you know, like, literally you, the device was $3,000. And, <laughs> and, then, and then when it comes out, everybody's disappointed, right? So, like, it's this feedback loop of not understanding fundamentally the implementational details, not understanding the realities, buying the FUD, which is like that there's magic that happens. This is what I don't get. I still don't understand this magic that happens thing. Yeah. That well, every, and part of that is device and iteration needs magic. Yeah. You know, like, and, and I'm doing air quotes here because I don't know what that means. <laughs> and it means different things to different people, but so yeah, there's this weird expectation that we're just going to do the impossible. And then there's also, I think the other big part of the, the feedback loop that happens in that particular space is that there's a certain brand of person that their ears only perk up when it involves Apple. Yes. Right? So they're like, there's an NFC box. This is what NFC must look like. Even though we've never seen an NFC implementation looks like that at all. Yeah. Right? Like the only NFC implementation ever in a smartphone to date period end of story is you know, like an NXP controller and then an inductive coil antenna. Right. Well, yeah, so so like, since when ever has it been like a little package? Yeah. So let's take a step back, Brian, can you, so you were the one that, that debunked that this was not an, an NFC implement, like that, that this just didn't make sense quickly. It had you... never made sense. <laughs> so I think so... even in the first podcast, yeah, that's true. So can you um, just quickly explain why this didn't make sense here? So, I mean, like the first time that I saw the metal case leak with the, you know, like machine marks, so obviously it's metal. Um, I, I was in a cafe and I turned to my friend who is the owner and I said, that phone doesn't have NFC. And that was the last that I thought of it for like two months <laughs> because it's just obvious, right? And you can... So obviously, so NFC works by inducing a magnetic field or, you know, like electromagnetic field. And because of this no, very so long actually, wave, hang on for just one second. What, you don't what, um, really make like a dipole antenna. You make like an inductive coil. And as a result, you know, like you need to have a very big space for an inductive coil. 
to have good inductance. And most of the time this ends up being like just on the backside of the battery, like what Samsung does. Or if you're looking at an HTC phone, like they print it inside the plastic and you know, like inside, inside of the Nexus seven, it's the same thing inside of, you know, like the PureView 808, it's the same thing. Like we've seen this over and over. It's a big inductive coil. So you need a big area to get good inductance, good alignment, good, um, you know, like proximity, all these, uh, all these features that just are inherent to the implementation. So when you have a big metal backside, like obviously those are orthogonal. Those are like, you just can't do both at the same time. So I think after we kind of opened our mouths a little bit about that, then people started to think, well, can I, can you put it in the glass windows at top and bottom and would, would that work? And that's where you saw this like, oh, well, there's a square here that we don't know what it is, but it's, it's NFC because this is what maps in our mind to NFC working, right? So I don't know if I did a good job explaining it, but that's sort of at a high level, I think, what, how it went. No, that's perfect. And, and so um, just as background for people who don't know what NFC is, right? Um, Brian, do you want to handle that? Yeah, it's near-field near communication. So obviously it's... it's um, <clears throat> very short link uh, communications protocol that sort of emulates the smart card standards that existed before, which were all RFID based. So in, in an NFC scheme per se, you can operate in a peer-to-peer -peer mode where you exchange date, data between a host and a peer or like a host and a listener, they call it, uh, or the polling and listening device. And then there's also other modes too, like you can use your NFC device to just read tags or you can make your NFC device look like a tag to a reader. So basically you enable these use cases where I can use my smartphone to sort of pay a bus fare or you know, like do contactless payment at the 7-Eleven or you know, like your local stop and rob. And then, you know, like there are these use cases that everybody envisions. Things like you can tap your phone to your nightstand on a tag and then you know, like put it in sleep mode or you know, like I have an NFC tag on my door that has the Wi-Fi pre-shared key so that for every phone I don't need to type it in, I just tap the phone to it. You know, things like that are what NFC is when people talk about it. And, and then there's in the, the, in the peer to peer mode, you use it to sort of like do out of band, um, what is it the right word? Out of band, you know, like peering for Bluetooth. Yes. Right. So your, your pairing would it just happens out of band. So because we're too lazy to type in digits or hold down buttons and then, you know, pair things that way. So, so you everybody's just, uh, like, oh, well, because there's Passbook on the iOS 6 beta, they must have NFC, right? And that's about as far as the, the logic went. <laughs> <laughs> now, so um, obviously, you know, there's, there's no large inductive coil on, on the back of the, the new iPhone. Um, the back is all metal, so that's not going to work anyways. Um, you, you know, you just have like a grounded body there. Um, why wouldn't it be in the, the tiny strip of glass at the top or the bottom? Just because, uh, I mean, you could, you could do that in theory, but I don't believe you'd get enough inductance to have good pairing. And the other thing is that uh, it's an alignment issue. Like all the implementations of NFC have sort of standardized on putting it in the center. And that's sort of like an optimization that's, sort of arisen out of the fact that that's the best way to optimize for the largest area for your coil is to put it in the center, yeah. right? And, I mean, obviously, 
when you're pairing, when we're talking about tapping two iPhones together, that works. But when you start doing things like you're tapping it to a contact reader or another device, then it's sort of it's um it's obviously not in the center and it's it's way way off to the side. It's not it's not like an isotropic thing anymore where NFC sort of exists, right? You have to worry about alignment. And when I think about an implementation that would be perfect and like sort of held up to like Apple doing it, I don't think about my alignment is all messed up and I have to worry about I'm tapping the top or the bottom to this this thing and it's just it's just like it's not going to happen. It just doesn't <laughs> You know, like the other thing was that maybe they'll do it through the front because there was a patent. I think I think that um that's just that's maybe like another year out or more more years out because if we're going to Incel, we're already talking about multiplexing the display driver signals and the touch, you know, like the touch drive and sense signals. Um, and you know, like, there's only so many things you can do in a 60, 60 Hertz or 120 Hertz cycle. Um, and multiplexing three things together, you know, like including NFC detect, because it's always sort of on. That's the thing people don't realize as well. It's, there is a pull, you know, like, detect signal that's always being emitted if in certain modes. Um, so multiplexing all those things together is not an easy thing to do. And I don't, I think it's too much of a leap to see that we, to, to even expect that you'd see an implementation where we're going to magically do all three at once versus we're going to do, first we're going to do two, you know, like we're going to do in-cell touch, we're going to do display driver, well, time okay, multiplex, and you... then we're going to go on one more generation to the third. So same thing for, for folks who aren't familiar, because we haven't written a ton about Incel Touch. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so I mean, in, Incel, I mean, you wrote about it a little bit. I mean, Incel is basically, um, instead of having the, the drive and, the, I mean, like the drive, the source and detect layers um, above sort of your LCD, you incorporate those layers into the into the gating that's in the LCD. So, I mean, there's debate about where, where do you put where do you put the layers, right? Like you can put the detect layers on top of the color layer. Um, basically, on a, at a high level, what you're doing is you're putting the touch panel inside the LCD gating. And as a result, the stack is thinner because I don't have all these things, you know, piled on top of each other. And the other gain is that, you know, like outside of just the thickness getting thinner, the other gain is that you have fewer Fresnel reflections so you have less light being reflected back and sort of contributing to blur and loss of contrast. And um, this is sort of like the general direction that things are going uh, in terms of better integrating the touch, in, you know, like touch panel into the LCD and getting thinner devices. And again, like absorbing more of your power into not losing it to those 4% back reflections that you get every time you change interfaces. So I don't, that's incel at a high level, I guess. And, and so what you're saying there is, look, we are just now making the transition to integrating. Um, so when you're talking about uh, sensing and drive layers, um, the way capacitive touchscreen works, right, is that you uh, generate a field, uh, and that'd be your, your drive layer of, of electrodes. Um, and then the capacitive touch sensor looks at how that field is distorted by the presence of your finger. Right or or whatever grounded body you're touching to the screen, 
Um, so what you're effectively saying is, look, that's a complex enough move to integrate the, the drive circuitry into your LCD panel, removing that, that, you know, what would normally be a discrete layer. That's a complex enough move to begin with that also integrating an NFC detect coil method or whatever you want to do in that same layer, um, is, is just biting off a lot for this first generation. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's too much to happen all at once because I mean, these things need, the signals need to be time multiplexed together in order for it to work. And that's not a trivial problem because, you know, like when you're sensing what, what, what's the X and Y coordinate in the display that corresponds to a finger, you're sort of pulsing things at different times. You know, you're looking like, how is this coupled? And then you sort of magically back out an X and Y. Well, obviously at the same time, I'm also, I also have to be driving the screen and you know there's only so much time that you have to do that and i mean well it's it's conceivable i mean obviously they have a patent filed for it they think maybe it will happen someday it's just way too much to happen all at once yeah and like just realistically and everybody is always like oh well there has to be magic right like we have (laughs) we expect magic so maybe that's the magic right like you know that's that's just how things work yeah Um, no and i think Sorry, can I interject with a question? Um, yeah, would it yeah. be possible to only multiplex either touch or NFC? So obviously, when you're touching, you don't need NFC. When you yeah, so you could do those, I suppose. Yeah, but again, that's sort of like the expectation. Well, how do I know when there's going to be a touch, right? Versus how do I know when there's going to be a, a device or a token coming in proximity of my device? You know. Okay. It's sort of like a chicken and egg problem. If you want to like slot, if you want to use the time slot they're using for the time, the time multiplex touch sense to also slot in NFC, then you sort of need to have like a prescience, right? Like, what does that state machine look like? I don't know. I'd have to go back to the patent. Clearly, there's some way to do it, but I believe they just they just add more time slots. And and a lot of this, I'm assuming boils down to how intelligent your controller is right yeah like, again there's probably no controller that does this yeah right? you can <laughs> like no it's clearly it comes in a square man you have like, to buy it from someone <laughs> ostensibly yeah i mean that's the thing like you can you can take a lot of noise and make sense out of it given infinite compute right sure, like that's yeah. I, that's the fundamental basics of of everything we do right like it's it's how do you take something that's really crappy and make sense out of it and just throw a bunch of compute until that works yeah i mean obviously it's possible at some level i just think it's it's too much of a leap to say we're going to go and do all this stuff all just at once yes you know yeah. and i could be wrong maybe we'll look back and we'll be like haha he's retarded <laughs> all this like it did have all these things yeah but that's that's just me. No, I, I think that's that's likely accurate, and that's what we've seen, right? The other thing we wrote about in that NFC thing is just looking at Apple's cadence. Um, they're actually not all that aggressive, right? They they they're aggressive on a couple of things, um, but they they tend to be fairly conservative in how they adopt new technologies, um, and and it actually reminds me a lot of this. Uh, dichotomy between AMD and or I guess ATI and NVIDIA where after NV30 NVIDIA became very conservative about moving to the latest and greatest manufacturing process 
right? They would they would always stick on the previous node um, uh, until the next node was like really mature, right? Twenty eight nanometer was the first time where where that was kind of the exception. Um, whereas ATI would always be, you know, from from when NVIDIA and V thirty came out until you know recently, uh, they would always be on the bleeding edge there. Um, I think in the smartphone space, we don't really have that counterbalance to Apple quite yet. Um, but but I think that's an important aspect of the way Apple operates. Um, that that that'll likely come into play at, at some later point as this market consolidates. Well, you know what I what I always look at to back that point up is um, sort of the first table that we had. We had the same SoC and the iPhone iPhone 3G. We changed cellular architectures. Then we sort of kept almost the same SoC. And then we we kept the same cellular architecture again, right? So, like, I mean, uh, you have to go look at the table to understand what I'm saying. But basically, they would change one and then keep the other one the same and then only tweak one one axis of what was in the puzzle at a time, which is probably the right way to do things because otherwise you're just changing way too much stuff all at once. Yeah, which is actually, you know, we've seen this echoed, again, going back to, uh, at this time, Intel, um, I remember I was sitting in a briefing for the second uh, Centrino architecture that came out, Dothan, and uh, Muli Eden over there was telling me that, look, there's, you know, the rule of thumb is this, you can change architecture or you can change manufacturing process. You don't change both. Because if you change both, there's too much of a chance of something going wrong, right? These are like really complex projects. And just introducing a whole bunch of new, and I get that it's like super exciting and tempting to do that, but that's how you slip schedule, right? Like that's how you release a product that either has problems or isn't done on time. And that that same philosophy seems to resonate everywhere, right? That you don't change a whole bunch of things at once. You pick one thing that you can dramatically change and you kind of incrementally improve everything else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the, the, the iteration this time is obviously LTE. Yes, and um, we've we've set our part on that, and I think it's fairly obvious at that point, at this point, that it is included. So, we'll see. I think there's an expectation there too that's starting to bubble up. That like, oh well, what are they going to do different? That's LTE, you know? Like, is it going to be magical? Well, <laughs> it's still a Category Three device. Yes. And like to me, this performance and battery life is old hat because I've had. Like the One X with AT and T for a couple months now, right? Yep. It's like this will be new to people who have never seen it, but for me, it's like, oh, okay, you know, it's the same. It's the same IP block, same performance, same category. Yep. Um, it's just catching up, right? It's like it's it's getting with the current generation. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I don't know what's going to be magical there. I don't know what's like again. It's perception. I think it's a lot. A lot of perception is the the limiting thing and what, what drives this and, and also managing the expectations. And if, if you keep your expectations low, then you can be surprised. And I think that's sort of the magic that they've done, you know, like sort of their secret sauce. Yes. Again, because you see this weird pervasive, um, like, I don't want, I don't want to say meme, but it is a meme. It's like a meme that they don't care about specs. Oh yeah. When right? Apple like, is I like, I love seeing that because it's just like, Oh, and that my my theory is that that's part of how they keep the expectations low, so that something that's really good looks magical. Yeah, well, that's such a, a fallacy, right? Like because again, 
Apple still builds the absolute largest SOCs in that space, which you would only do if you care about specs, right? Like it's, it's, you know, it just happens to be that the discussion is built around what that enables, right? That's the one thing whenever people have this silly discussion about, well, hardware doesn't matter. Specs don't matter. It's the experience that matters. Well, it's Silicon enables experience, right? Like you can take the best programmers in the world. And if you give them an arm 11 or a Pentium two, you know, good luck, right? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I mean, you're not going to yeah. get something that's just a great experience out of that. It is all enabled through silicon. It's enabled through the hardware. Um, okay, I, I think that's a, that's a good ending note. I know we have a bunch of stuff on here. Um, Brian, you and I are off to New York next week um, to... That, that's going to be fun. Yeah. Go, yeah, a bunch of stuff is happening there, so we'll be able to talk about some of this stuff then. Um, and then Ian coming up pretty soon, you're going to be, well, you are already in London. Um, you've got a, an Intel and Motorola event there that you'll be going to, um, towards the end of September. Um, and a bunch of other stuff that I don't know is necessarily public yet, but there is a lot of events happening in September, a lot more to talk about. Um, so we, we're, I think Brian, our schedules will work out. We'll be back on Friday. And Ian, yeah, you said, I don't know what time I get back in, but I mean, we'll we'll figure it out. Okay, yeah, we'll 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 definitely try and, and do a catch up uh, podcast a week from now. And Ian, you are on a honeymoon. Yes. Okay. So so no, Ian, but congratulations. Oh, awesome! That's good. Going to Barcelona for not Mobile World Congress is probably really cool. <laughs> <laughs> Mobile World Congress, I always get sick. Yes, that's that's like me and CES. <laughs> Um, okay, cool. Well, we will be back in again uh, in, in a week. Um, so thank you all for reading the site and thank you all for listening. Um, and yeah, we'll, we will, uh, you'll hear from us soon.